maybe we thought we were getting, you know, glimpses more conscientious civil servants, but in fact, that may not be at all the case. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 57 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Karen McClure from the Paris School of Economics. She'll talk with us about her research into the challenges of using the popular big five measures of personality outside of Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic settings. Here's Karen McCour. Hello, my name is Karen McCour. I'm a microdevelopment economist. I'm a professor at the Paris School of Economics, a researcher at INRA, the, the French National Research Institute for Agriculture. But before being in Paris, I was based in the U.S., So I taught at SAIS, Charles Hopkins University, for seven years, and before that I did my PhD uh, at UC Berkeley. And uh, I'm born in in Belgium, so in the the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium, which is where I did my first degree before moving to the US and then eventually coming back to Europe. The World Bank's Skills Towards Employability and Productivity, or STEP, program seeks to better understand the relationships between job skills and requirements among residents of low- and middle-income countries. Among other activities, the program surveys residents living in such countries in order to obtain data regarding their cognitive ability, job-relevant skills, and personality traits, including measures of the Big Five traits openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. As Karen and her colleagues had access to this data set, Doug and I were curious to learn how they went about developing their research question and carrying out their study. Our initial hypothesis was that we would say, well, in very low uh, educated populations in rural areas in poor countries, we find lots of validity concerns. And then what we expected to find is that as we move higher up, in the income distribution or higher up in the education distribution, uh, that the data would behave more like the big five in, in, in the US. So, so that's kind of why we thought it was a, the, the, the step service provided an interesting opportunity to, to look at this because it's large data set. They cover the scale from very low to relatively high income and within country from, from low educated to highly educated. But we saw that our initial hypothesis actually didn't hold, and we also found similar validity issues in many different settings and among many different populations using surveys. So that then raised the question to what extent the whole debate about uh, the literature on the universality of the Big Five in the psychological literature, how do we square that? After seeing that their initial hypothesis wasn't supported in the step data, Karen and her colleagues looked to other Big Five datasets to determine whether personality traits can be measured and interpreted reliably across the world. Ryan and I asked Karen to describe those datasets. So what we do is we analyze data from four different types of datasets, all of which aim to collect data about personality traits using questions from the Big Five Index, which is specifically designed to measure the Big Five personality trends initially among college-educated uh, populations uh, in the U.S. And so we identify four different types of sources of that data. So the first one is this large-scale national representative data that the World Bank collects in many different countries. The second one is a collection of data sets that were used from articles either in economics or in psychology, the data collected in developing countries for research that is published in top journals. So those surveys vary from large representative surveys to kind of much smaller data sets that were collected specifically for impact evaluations of specific policies by development economists. So that's a second type of data set. And then the third type of data is 
this data that was collected on the internet. So the first two are all type of data that are the bread and butter of development economists. But the internet data is different because those are, uh, and, and many of you have have done this kind of go online to figure out your personality and you answer certain questions online and it tells you whether you are a person that is that is more open or that is conscientious, uh, etc. So these are people that themselves in a certain way selected to answer those questions and filtered in themselves while online. And then the fourth data, of course, is the data that we compare this to, which is one of the data set that has been used by psychologists in, in, in this whole literature. So once we have all these data sets, uh, we then in sort of make compare, kind of analyze to what extent the pattern in the data, the, the, the correlations within the data, coincides with what you would expect if these data uh, indeed measure the, the big five personality traits. The big five is somewhat rare in that there isn't one single survey that's used to measure people's personality traits. Rather, thousands of items have been created over time, and hundreds of big five tests exist. Nevertheless, one questionnaire developed by a team of researchers led from the University of California, Berkeley, the Big Five Inventory, has been used in countless experiments since it debuted in 1991. However, not all of the datasets Karen and her colleagues analyzed contained the same number of questions. Doug and I asked Karen to describe how she and her colleagues dealt with this heterogeneity. In order to be able to compare across the different datasets in the different countries, all the data that we analyze in this article use a subset of the questions of the BFI, which is one uh, very commonly used instrument to measure the big five. And so the BFI is the one that has been used by economists, that kind of has been kind of adapted by or adopted by economists in the type of work we do. So that's why we focus on that, even if that meant you know, there was one or two uh, papers that we couldn't include. Then within the, the BFI, the full instrument is 44 questions. So then indeed, a lot of the data sets we use only have 15 of those 44. That is not our choice, but that is driven by the fact that the, 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 you know, the different researchers that collected the data or the, or the institutions that collected the data only collected a subset of the 44. Uh, and so in particular, the World Bank step surveys only has 15 of the 44 questions. So the 44 questions kind of have with seven or eight questions for each of the personality traits. The World Bank designed the initial step surveys. They had kind of done control and exercise to identify for each of the, you know, the larger set of questions, which ones are the three that seem to be the most appropriate. Uh, and then indeed, some of the other data sets have somewhere in between the 15 and 44, and that is, is related to of a similar reasoning. So basically, if you believe that the 44 BFI index does a good job at capturing the big five personalities with lots of precision, then different researchers have kind of done a calculation and said, oh, we'll give up a little bit of precision by having less questions, but still capturing those five different personality traits, all working on the assumptions that, you know, the particular questions would map to the personality traits they do in the US. And indeed, there is a version of the BFI that only has 10 items. Uh, the number of items doesn't explain the lack of consistency. It certainly explains kind of some of the decision, but it doesn't explain you know, why certain questions are more correlated with other questions. Last year, Karen and her colleague Rashid Lajaj published another paper regarding the measurement of cognitive skills, as well as those that are non-cognitive or technical. As in the paper we're discussing today, they found challenges in accurately and precisely measuring the relationship between the variables of interest. So Brian and I asked Karen to tell us more about that project and how it may have influenced this study. The paper actually has, has two data sets that Rashid and I collected specifically looking at measurement questions. Rashid and I had done a survey experiment initially in Kenya, 
kind of saying, well, let's look at what developments economists are doing in terms of measuring cognitive uh, ability, non-cognitive ability, and technical ability, and let's see to what extent we can validate kind of the use of commonly used scales, uh, since that hasn't been done, and if we can't validate, why we can do that. So our initial objective, and this is how we, we started this whole research agenda, was to development economists are collecting all this data that hasn't been validated. Uh, let's figure out which ones work better in those type of settings. For the cognitive ability uh, questions, we found, as I was indicating before, in fact, that those have not just high validity and reliability, but also highly correlated with different measures. However, when we look at the non-cognitive skills, so this is measurements of self-esteem, of locus of control, including the, the, the big five, we, we found kind of evidence of systematic measurement there. So we initially did the study in that first study in Kenya, in, in mostly not very high levels of education. And we had noticed that it actually had been very hard, not just to translate the kind of the standardized scales, but also to make sure that in translating, we were not using kind of more complicated language or we were not using double negatives. So then the reason we did a second study in Colombia was then to say, okay, let's at least do this in a place where we understand what we're asking, uh, because we can ask the questions in Spanish. And so we know what we're asking. We know that there's no, no issues with, with the translation per se. And but we did that in kind of, you know, in, in the program in Colombia to have some comparability with the work. So since initially there seems to be evidence of systematic measurement error, let's try to see whether we can figure out, you know, what, what explains that, what are the factors. And so we varied a couple of, of different things in that study, including that the Big Five was self-administered versus enumerators. You know, send people to uh, the populations of interest who ask questions and record the answers through face-to-face interviews because we, we had found strong enumerator effects in the initial study. And so for people that had at least primary education, we then randomize whether the person was asked the Big Five questions through the enumerator, the way that all the other survey work was done, versus they were giving a sheet of paper and they filled in the answers to the questions on the sheet of paper. And since we randomly selected, that allows us then to analyze to what extent the, the self-administration gives us uh, more uh, concluences. While the Big Five has a long history of producing valid and reliable data, Karen and her colleagues are the first to recognize that it might not be as robust when used in low- and middle-income countries, especially when data are collected face-to-face rather than online. Doug and I were interested in hearing what led them to choose to investigate the Big Five's validity in this more nuanced way. The questions in each of those data sets that we looked at are meant to measure those five uh, personality traits. The reason why a big part of the literature believes they do is that because if you ask those those questions or related questions in what is called weird populations or in Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic places, we find the same pattern in the data. So if you had a set of questions that are meant to measure, for instance, openness, they'll correlate with each other. They don't, you know, they're not exactly the same, but there's a, there's a, more, a higher correlation between the questions that measure openness compared to when you take one question that measures openness and one question that measures, for instance, um, emotional stability. When you do this type of exercise, in, and, and this is what psychologists have done in many different settings with the data that typically psychologists use, you, you find those big five uh, personality traits back in the data. However, when we do this type of exercise with the data collected through surveys in low and middle income countries, we fail to find those same patterns. And indeed, we find uh, things that are very surprising. So questions that are meant to measure the same personality traits, in fact, 
seem to correlate more with questions that are meant to measure different personality types than with other questions that are meant to measure the same thing. Uh, and so we kind of analyze this in, in, in a couple of different ways to demonstrate that both the robustness of that finding, you know, is this related to the number of questions, etc. So we can discard these different options. And indeed, we find that this lack of validity, not just across countries along the income spectrum, but also uh, across levels of education, so low education versus high education, across uh, people with different jobs and different ages, etc. But that doesn't hold, of course, uh, well, maybe not of course, but that lack of validity is not true when you look at the data collected on the internet. Given the variety of data sources that Karen and our colleagues analyzed in their study, Brian and I wondered to what extent the data could be said to be representative of the larger population in which the surveys were conducted. We were also eager to hear about how the data collected from people in person differed from that from those who completed an online survey. It's certainly true that in the development economics profession, this interest in personality to a certain extent comes from the literature in the U.S. that has shown kind of very strong reasons to believe that not just personality but more general socio-emotional skills are important. Uh, and then to say, well, if that's true in the U.S., why wouldn't it be true in low- and middle-income countries? And so the data that we use uh, from, from studies that have been published goes from Mexico to, so there's actually a couple of Latin American ones, Mexico, Paraguay, Colombia, there is a couple of, in Africa, Ghana, Kenya, there is, you know, others in uh, Eastern Europe or Central Asia, and then there's a few in Asia. So, so it does cover the whole spectrum. And the data collected on the internet has large numbers of observations also in, in low and middle income countries. Now, it's true though that there is a lot of variation between countries. And so that may well be reflective of stronger interest in some countries than in others. But another big difference between the internet data and the face-to-face survey data is, is very much about representativity. So certainly, you know, the World Bank step data is specifically meant to be representative of either the national population or the urban population in certain countries. And so it, it covers uh, all kinds of people at different education levels, but also different interests, different uh, views on life, uh, etc. And the same is true for some of the more and specific data sets collected for the specific purposes, they'll still be representative of the population of interest, whichever that is. But the data collected on the internet, on the other hand, it's people that go online that are, in this case, motivated by uh, knowing something about their own personality. And they presumably will think about the answers. Uh, so it's a different type of person. They have also a different incentive to answer the question. It's not just a different type of person because it's somebody that is interested in this, but it's also somebody that has access to internet and has time to do this type of thing, uh, has access to information to know, to go fill in a personality test online. So then that gets you to a selected and incentivized population in comparison to you know the people we interview in our face-to-face surveys, they don't necessarily are interested. The team study raises serious concerns about the validity of Big Five personality assessments, and also about their use and subsequent interpretation in prior studies carried out in low- and middle-income countries. At the same time, questionnaires completed over the internet from the same set of countries do support the Big Five model as being comprised of the expected five traits. As this seems to suggest that low validity isn't primarily driven by cultural or contextual differences, Doug and I asked Karen how it was that the Big Five became so ubiquitous in the first place. First of all, one of the reasons we did this project is that among development economists, there has been an interest, I guess, to go beyond uh, looking at cognitive skills 
to look at other aspects of human capital. So going back in time, initially there was a lot of strong interest in investing in education and related to that in learning. So what whether uh, children are learning in school, whether they get the right cognitive skills or even before school, whether early uh, childhood investment increase cognitive skills that then lead to better outcomes later in life. And more recently, you know, following the literature in the U.S. to a certain extent, there has been increased interest and effort to say, well, maybe it's not just cognitive skills that matter, maybe non-cognitive skills or socio-emotional skills may, may be equally important also in those settings. And indeed, literature in, in the U.S. suggests that they are about equally important. And so there's a question on whether that's true or not what conditions that may be true in, in developing countries. So this is why a lot of people doing research in, in these settings start uh, measuring this. And what, and what had happened is basically a development economist said, well, you know, these scales have been validated and validated over and over again by uh, psychologists in the U.S. So we can use those scales and use them in all data collection. So then there's a question on research that has implications if these things are not measuring what we think they capture. As she's a developmental economist interested in improving the social and political potential of populations in developing countries, Ran and I followed up by asking Karen for examples of how these implications might play out in terms of policy and practice. We'll hear what she had to say after this short break. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like Parsing Science's new project, Science Pods, the curated collection of episodes from other podcasts that are handpicked for people interested in science. You can explore new science shows that will inform your research, guide your career, or maybe make you laugh at the absurdities of scientific life. You can subscribe at sciencepods.com. That's science, P-O-D-S, dot com. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here again is Karen McCour. This research showing that if you change the incentives of the way you select civil servants, you get civil servants with different personality traits. So you may, you may want to have, you know, people that are more conscientious so that they work harder, or you may want to have people that are more agreeable because then people will come to them. You know, as a, as, as a government, you may have a certain type of civil servant. And so there's research that shows that depending on how you recruit people or how you incentivize them, you may get people with different personality traits. Now, if you take that finding and then you take all results, then you could say, well, wait a minute, maybe we thought we were getting, you know, for instance, more conscientious civil servants, but in fact, that may not be at all the case because these variables that capture conscientiousness, uh, we don't actually quite know what it's captured. You know, it's probably captured something about those people, uh, but it may not be whether they, you know, they like working hard. But on the policy side, the, the measurement of, of skills, for instance, are, of, of these personality traits are, for instance, being used to help address uh, youth unemployment uh, and to help match, for instance, young graduates to jobs. So you'll have policy interventions that kind of ask possible employers, what type of people do you want for what type of job? And then they'll have, you know, do personality tests on possible candidates and then they'll suggest matches based on the personality. So you can imagine that if you work a lot with clients, you may prefer a certain type of personality. If you have a very stressful job, then you kind of need people that are emotionally stable. If you need people to be inventive, you want people that are open, etc. So that's kind of the logic of why these, these interventions are happening. That's great in theory, but if measures of personality are incorrect, then that match that is being suggested will not hold. And then to the extent that the type of diagnostics that I was referring to, kind of if we find that in certain type of countries, people that score higher on openness have higher incomes, if that would be used to say, no, what we should do is we should train during early childhood or in school 
people on openness, then, you know, possibly that could well be a, a very wrong policy if, in fact, we were not measuring openness. And so to be a little bit more concrete, I do a lot of work on uh, technology adoption in agriculture. And so it's quite naturally to think that uh, openness to change, kind of the idea of, oh, I want to try some new stuff, uh, I want to try new techniques and, you know, so go away from what myself, my dad, my granddad has tried. Think, for instance, a new fertilizer, a new variety, or a new way of, of cultivating. One, you know, theoretically, it seems very plausible that openness uh, may be predictive of, of that type of uh, behavior. And if that's true, then that would be super valuable to know because then one could target, for instance, extension efforts to people that are more open to change. And so I think there's reasons to believe that differences in, in personality between people indeed may be useful for policy. And I think what our article shows is that that may still be very well true. It's just that it's hard to measure. Karen and her colleagues' findings don't necessarily mean that there's no useful information that can be gleaned from the Big Five. Rather, it underscores the fact that response bias can be brought about in many ways, including due to the method of collecting data and various demographic idiosyncrasies of respondents. Doug and I were interested in learning what Karen thinks might explain her and her colleagues' findings. I wish I had a simple answer, um, but the lesson of this article is that there's no simple answer. But there's a couple of key things we can pick up on the data that are suggestive. So the one is that a certain type of, of bias that we actually can measure, in fact, is a tendency for people to say yes. And so what we observe in a lot of the data is that a lot of people kind of like saying yes, so they like to agree with, with the statement more than disagree. Uh, and it's likely that that's much stronger when somebody asks you a question in person. And, and so what we show is that that bias is actually large in most of those low- and middle-income countries. It is also uh, correlated to cognition. So we have a measure in at least some of the data of a proxy of cognition. So it's actually a literacy test. And we see that people with higher cognitive skills have less of this bias. And when we tested this uh, initially in, in, in some of the work we did in Kenya, our perception was very much that if I, if I don't understand the question, I'll just say yes, I'll just agree. Because, you know, that seems like the nice thing to do. So this is something that, that may be uh, stronger when it's face to face. Of course, there's social desirability bias. That's why I'm giving you the answer that I think you want to hear. That, that is something the data doesn't allow us to quantify. So it likely is present. We just don't know how important it is. A hypothesis would be that that also explains part of the difference. Karen and her colleagues gauged respondents' cognitive ability through their functional literacy rather than through their abilities in math or problem solving. Ryan and I were curious why this proxy measure was used, as well as what this infers about cognitive ability more broadly. We certainly agree that this is not a great measure of cognitive ability. It is indeed driven by the availability of only that measure in the step surveys. But my understanding of the reason why the step survey decided to focus on that measure is a very pragmatic one. And the surveys can be very long, and so they face the trade-off of which ones to include. And so while ideally one probably would want to have some problem solving and some kind of more abstract kind of thinking, so then they ended up going only with functional literacy. That said, in our work, in our other work, we also try to validate different measures of both cognitive ability and, and things like math and language. And you can argue whether that's cognition or whether that's more measurements of things you've learned in school, achievement tests, if you want to. But when we compare kind of math or language tests with ones that are more uh, abstract or more uh, about processing 
of processing speed. So, for instance, the, the, the Raven test, which is a more abstract test than cognition. If we look at the correlations between, for instance, the Raven test and, and math tests and language tests, we actually find very high correlations uh, in these, these different settings. Suggesting that then, you know, then, you know, one of them may be a reasonable proxy for that type of population. But certainly, if we think of, for instance, the literature on early childhood development uh, and measurement of different skills, you clearly want to distinguish between cognition, things like problem solving that are being affected strongly by, for instance, nutrition, health, and then uh, measured math and language that are also affected by, of course, when we learn in school and, and hence measure. Ideally, we would have had that, but we didn't have the luxury here, so we don't analyze the whole of cognition. Social desirability is the tendency for some people to respond inaccurately or falsely to questions asked of them in a research study. Another possible explanation as to why people don't always respond accurately to surveys, one that isn't as often discussed in the literature, could be that they do so from the mindset of how they wish to see themselves. While it went beyond the scope of her study, Doug and I asked Karen if she might be able to suggest other possible reasons for why people respond to surveys the way that they do, beyond those that many researchers are already familiar with. Another reason why has to do with anchoring. So I perceive myself a certain way, in part because I compare myself with other people. And so if nobody in my village is, is trying anything new, forever type of thing, and I'm the one that, you know, once in a while say, okay, let me try this slightly differently, then I may consider myself very open. But if I were to compare, you know, that person to somebody in Silicon Valley, that same person may see himself very different if you change the people that he compares himself to. And so, you know, anchoring is something that um, in these kind of questions that are certainly subjective, it has been shown to be important in other research. We had found, at least in some of our other work, to quantify the anchoring effect using tools that, for instance, political scientists would use. And the evidence of anchoring we certainly find. So I think the, there's reasons to believe that there's indeed many different types of response bias. And I think that most development economists or most economists know that there is measurement error and recognize there is measurement error and very often uh, assume that the measurement error is random which then creates, you know, some noise around what I'm doing. And sometimes we actually have systematic measurement error when questions are actually measuring something different than what we think they're measuring, so that becomes systematic. And moreover, when that is correlated, for instance, to a cognitive level or education levels, or et cetera, then, you know, then we may be making the wrong conclusions. Karen and her colleagues' research was picked up by a variety of news outlets, mostly under headlines such as, the famous Big Five personality test might not reveal the true you, as this kind of coverage seems to misrepresent the team's findings, Brian and I asked Karen about her impressions of how the research has been covered in the press. The message of our paper is very much about the fact that this data or analysis does not allow to say anything about the universality of the Big Five. And the objective of this paper is not to question the existing literature. The objective of this paper is to say, well, the Big Five factor structure may well exist. It's just very hard to uncover low- and middle-income countries due to a combination of different factors. And so, you know, I think some of the reactions in the media, but also on social media, indeed then kind of saying, okay, but maybe your results just mean that we actually do question the universality. But the internet data suggests um, that at least for those populations, the big five factor structure comes out. And so for me, it's always slightly frustrating uh, that people try to draw different lessons and 
the intended ones, it seems unavoidable though. But I guess my bigger surprise and, and all bigger surprise is that this got this much press coverage. For it being a, a methodological paper, we didn't think this would happen at all. That was Karen McClure discussing her article, Challenges to Capture the Big Five Personality Traits in Non-Weird Populations, which was published with multiple co-authors on July 10th, 2019 in the journal Science Advances. You'll find a link to her paper at parsingscience.org e57, along with bonus audio and other materials that we discussed during the episode. Interested in the latest developments in science? Then sign up for our weekly roundup of the latest science news from across the disciplines at parsingscience.org newsletter. Or if you'd like to check out our first 52 issues, just head over to parsingscience.org news. Next time in episode 58 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Nafiz Hamid from University College London. He'll talk with us about what he learned by measuring the brain activity of supporters of a radical Islamist group as they indicated their willingness to fight and die for sacred and non-sacred values, and as they reacted to peers' ratings of those values. Sacred values are very difficult to change. Once you really have a real proper sacred value, I mean, the only thing that we can that, that we would guess from all of our other work that might lead to a change is if a person is put in a totally different social context and has a totally different sort of reference group, totally different friends um, who share completely different norms, different sacred values amongst them. And this person wants to gain access into that new reference group, which is exactly how radicalization itself happens. We hope that you'll join us again. <laughs>